someone has astutely observed, honest criticism is hard to take, particularly if it's from a younger person, an older person, a relative, a close friend, a casual acquaintance, or a stranger. <laughs> How do you handle criticism? Particularly when you're misunderstood and then someone's critical, how do you respond? I don't know about you, but criticism can be very unpleasant. In fact, sometimes it's just downright painful. In the passage we're going to study this morning, Paul, the apostle, is responding to criticism from the Corinthians. And that's what we're going to see in the remainder of chapter 1. So if you want to make your way to the book of 2 Corinthians, which is what we're studying this fall, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, if you have a Bible in front of you in the seat back, page 1225, 2 Corinthians chapter 1. Paul is going to respond to criticism by appealing to five different things that we're going to see in the text. The first is an appeal to a clear conscience. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 12 to 14. Paul writes, For our boast is this, the testimony of our conscience, that we behaved in the world with simplicity and godly sincerity, not by earthly wisdom, but by the grace of God, and supremely so toward you. For we are not writing to you anything other than what you read and understand, and I hope you fully understand, just as you did partially understand us, that on the day of our Lord Jesus, you will boast of us as we will boast of you. What's happening here is that Paul is being accused of base motives. They accuse him of being insincere and fickle, promising one thing and then doing another. But can you imagine how hurtful this must be to the Apostle Paul? For heaven's sakes, he founded the church. He poured his life into them for 18 months on his first visit with them. And so Paul appeals to his conscience. Now, he uses the word conscience 23 times in his writings and in his verbal comments as we see in the, in the book of Acts. Let me give you an example. Paul has been arrested in Jerusalem and he's standing before Felix, the governor. And here's what he says to him. So I always take pains to have a clear conscience toward both God and man. And he, and he gives us a little bit of, a, of an example of what he means by this clear conscience. And so he uses a number of words to describe his conduct, how he lived and behaved among them. And this is why he can appeal to a clear conscience. The first is simplicity. The word could also be translated honesty or uprightness. Paul says, listen, everything I have said when I was with you, everything that I've done with and among you, I've done honestly. There's been no deception. And then he says it's with godly sincerity. I think he means here there's no hidden agenda. Uh, you know, some, some apparently were accusing Paul of having written some other letters, some private letters to some of those in the church of Corinth. But in verse 13, Paul says, no, the only letters are the ones that you've read and that have been read in the hearing of the whole congregation. He says, my conscience here is also evident that this isn't earthly wisdom. 
What is earthly wisdom? Well, in his New Testament letter, James writes about the difference between earthly wisdom and heavenly wisdom. Let's keep your finger in 2 Corinthians and turn back later in the New Testament to the book of James, page 1290, James chapter 3, probably one of the earliest books written. And he's dealing with this issue of wisdom and see if this isn't what Paul is appealing to here. Verse 13 of James chapter 3, who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his words in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be discord in every vile practice. And if you remember for our study in 1 Corinthians some time back, this is exactly what was true in the church of Corinth. As they fought among themselves and claimed that some were of the party of Paul and some of Apollos and some of Peter, you know, so you can really see how what James is saying would fit to them. Verse 17, but the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere, and a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Paul says that's the kind of wisdom that I displayed when I was with you. And then he concludes by saying it's by the grace of God. I, I think more than anything we see, this is Paul's motivation for ministry. This is, motive, this is what drove him, the grace of God. The very nature of grace is giving to others what they don't deserve. And so Paul seems to be saying, listen, my whole mindset toward you is one of grace. My ministry is grace-filled. It's grace-motivated. And folks, that's what one of our values here. We want to be grace-motivated. We want to be grace-filled as we relate to people wherever they are. There's another aspect of this clear conscience. Look again at verse 14 back in 2 Corinthians 1. Paul says, just as you did partially understand us, that on the day of our Lord Jesus, you will boast of us as we will boast of you. Paul's saying there's a day coming when all of our motives are going to be examined. And this is where either judgment or commendation is going to be given. Turn back one book. Go back to 1 Corinthians and chapter 4. Paul speaks about this in his first letter here when he's talking about this whole thing of how we're judged and everything. 1 Corinthians chapter 4. Notice how he starts in verse 1. This is how one should regard us, as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. But with me, it's a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself. For I'm not aware of anything against myself, but I'm not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. And then each one will receive his commendation from God. I have a clear conscience, Paul says. He appeals to that, to these that were listening to him. Here's the second thing. It's an appeal to their benefit. Back in 2 Corinthians 1, starting at verse 15, Paul says, because I was sure of this, I wanted to come to you first 
so that you might have a second experience of grace. I wanted to visit you on my way to Macedonia and to come back to you from Macedonia and have you send me on my way to Judea. Was I vacillating when I wanted to do this? Do I make my plans according to the flesh, ready to say yes, yes, and no, no at the same time? As surely as God is faithful, our word to you has not been yes and no. Now here's the problem. Paul had changed his plans. That's all. The Corinthians are accusing Paul of deception, of carelessness. First, Paul's promised to spend the winter with them in Corinth. Look at the end of 1 Corinthians. We're looking in chapter 16. This is what he had said to them. 1 Corinthians 16, starting at verse 2. On the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper, so that there will be no collecting when I come. Now remember, what he's doing is he's collecting from the churches to be able to take to Jerusalem because of the famine in Judea. The saints were in dire straits, so he's taking a collection to minister to their needs. When I arrive, he says in verse 3, I will send those whom you accredit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. If it seems advisable that I should go also, they will accompany me. For I will visit you after passing through Macedonia, for I intend to pass through Macedonia, and perhaps I will stay with you or even spend the winter, so that you may help me on my journey wherever I go. For I do not want to see you now just in passing. I hope to spend some time with you if the Lord permits. But I'll stay in Ephesus until Pentecost, for a wide door for effective work has opened for me, and there are many adversaries. Paul changed his mind after he wrote that. How often do people interpret changes in plans not in a good way? They do, don't they? Pretty negative at times. And apparently the Corinthians are pretty bummed out about Paul changing his plans. And so Paul says, now what I'm planning is two visits to Corinth. One on my way into Macedonia, and the second on my way out from Macedonia. And then he would take the money from the collection and would take it to Jerusalem with someone else that had been appointed to go with him and, and minister to the church there. See, that's what Paul's referring to in verse 15. It's a little confusing. He calls it a second experience of grace. It's probably better translated from the Greek text as a double favor. And apparently, Paul has in mind that they would now have two opportunities to contribute to the needs of the saints in Jerusalem, one on his way to Macedonia and one on his way out. So in this way, the Corinthians would be doubly blessed. But now, even plan B has been scrapped. Look in 2 Corinthians 1, verse 23. Paul says, but I call God to witness against me. It was to spare you that I refrain from coming again to Corinth. Not that we lorded over your faith, but we work with you for your joy, for you stand firm in your faith. For I made up my mind not to make another painful visit to you. For if I cause you pain, who is there to make me glad but the one whom I have pained? And as I wrote before, so that when I came, I might not suffer pain from those who should have made me rejoice. For I felt sure of all of you that my joy would be the joy of you all. Paul cannot bear the thought of another painful visit. Remember, he's had to go in there and lower the hammer on these folks. And he's saying, I don't want to do that again. He was hoping that things would all get straightened out, 
before he returns so that he has the other people's best interests in mind there. You know, there are times, folks, that we must bear the criticism of others even unjustly. But we choose to do so because it's for their benefit. It's them that we're thinking about, not ourselves. But I don't know about you, that can really be difficult, can it? You know, I've been on the receiving end of some criticism when someone has assumed the worst. And without knowing the details and knowing the facts, they've simply blown off steam. And that's not a lot of fun, is it? Uh, And yet, what we're to do is see the benefit of others and the needs of others first so that we can do what is best for the other person, even if we're misunderstood, even if we're criticized. Instead of gratitude that we would expect, we get criticized. And it can sting. But God calls us to follow in his example to do that. So then he appeals to the promise of God. Look at, look at verse 19. Paul writes, For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, whom he proclaimed among you, Silvanus and Timothy and I, was not yes and no, but in him it is always yes. For all the promises of God find their yes in him. I know it seems a little kind of convoluted when you read that, but here's what I think Paul is trying to say. There's no vacillating in the promises of God. This is something that they never have to doubt. God is always bounded by his oath. It's always yes. And so Paul likewise wants these believers to know that when he speaks, he means it. He means it. You know, he's governed by honesty and forthrightness even if he's misunderstood by the Corinthians. He goes further. He appeals to the glory of God, the last part of of verse 20. That is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. If there's one thing that's a driving force behind Paul's ministry at all times, it is God's glory. He would do everything for God and his honor. He's more concerned about God's honor than he is his own. He's more concerned about God's reputation than he is his own. And I think that's a good checkpoint for us at all times, isn't it? I mean, are we in this for our honor or for God's? For our reputation or for his? For our honor or his? Finally, he gives an appeal to the work and ministry of God. Verse 21. Paul writes, it is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us and who has also put a seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. Now, Paul says some very important things here that are at the foundation of the relationship between the Corinthian Christians and himself and some amazing truths that apply to you and me as well. First, he talks about Uh, God's ministry. He says that it is God who establishes us with you in Christ. Paul declares that what connected the Christians in Corinth to him is God and his work. It wasn't Paul's efforts. It wasn't his slick methods or his presentations. It was God himself who had bound them together. The word established there is a business term. It referred to the guarantee of fulfilling a contract. It's the assurance that the seller gave to the buyer that the product was as advertised or that the service would be rendered as promised. So he says it's God who's established us, who guarantees our togetherness here. And then he brings up God's work. 
Not only do they share a common connection established by God, but there are a number of other things that they share together. The first thing that he happened, well, I'm gonna, before, I, before I mention him, uh, this, this is a little convoluted. If you read the Greek text of the New Testament, you know, they put their word order different. It's there for emphasis and for other things. But sometimes it's just fun to look at, if you just do a literal reading, what does it mean? Because it sort of opens up a little different understanding. Here's the literal rendering of that verse from the Greek New Testament text. It, it, it goes like this. But the one making firm us with you in Christ and having anointed us is God. The one both having sealed us and having given the earnest of the Spirit in the hearts of us. How would you like to read that all day? But the concept of anointing, let's start there. In the Bible, we often see with the anointing of prophets, of kings, they're anointed for God's service. And Paul says here that we've all been anointed. God is doing the anointing through the agency of the Spirit. Now, the Apostle John writes about anointing in his first epistle. And I think it helps to see that he's warning those believers against false teachers who are coming in claiming to have an anointing. Meaning that it's our teaching that you should follow. And so John writes this, But the anointing you received from him abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about everything, and is true, and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in him. This is the warning about false teachers. You know, they come in, he says, and you have the same problem in the Corinthian church. They come in and say, we have special insight into God's mysteries, into his word. So you be sure that you follow us. And John warns against that, as would Paul. Now, Paul goes on in 2 Corinthians 1 to say that God has put his seal upon us. There's a very significant meaning attached to this. You see, a seal on a document identified it. And it indicated its owner. Uh, this is the one who would protect it. And so now we begin to understand in salvation, the Holy Spirit, like a seal, confirms that Christians are identified with Christ. Uh, that they are God's property. They're protected by God himself. Let's look at a couple other passages in the New Testament that reinforce this idea of God's promise and guarantee. In Ephesians 1, Paul writes, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. The apostle Peter writes in his first epistle, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he's caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Can you see how important this truth is for us and for your salvation? That we've been sealed by the Holy Spirit as the guarantee that everything God has promised, he's going to deliver. That it is God who is protecting you and keeping you until the day when all of this comes to pass. 
Amazing, amazing truth. And so Paul deals with criticism that comes here from the believers in Corinth by pointing out some amazing truths that bind them together. When I think about it, he could have responded to their complaints with anger. He, he could have responded with scorn, with disdain, all of it justified, and yet he chose not to. Instead, he lays out the common ground that bound them together in Christ. Wouldn't it be great that instead of tearing down, we would focus on the common ground that we have in Christ? You know, it doesn't mean that error and wrong is covered over or ignored. But even when we speak the truth, we can do so with grace. Now, one other thing that Paul says about the work of God by his spirit here, and that is about God's confirmation and the certainty that the work he's begun, he'll bring it to completion. Paul puts it this way when he writes to the Philippians. He says, I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. And so Paul responds to his critics with such words of encouragement, words of grace, words of blessing. And he focuses on their common experience in Christ, the common salvation that they have. He emphasizes the good, and he chooses not to respond in kind. Well, let me wrap up this morning with some suggestions for handling criticism. I hope these might be helpful. Number one is don't count your critics, weigh your critics. Years ago, when Bill Bright, founder of Campus Crusade for Christ, an organization that Nancy and I belong to, uh, was, was, was being severely and publicly criticized. And I'm sure that there were some on his staff who were urging him to respond vigorously to his critics. And I'll never forget what he said. Don't count your critics. Weigh your critics. That is good advice. Because, you see, the danger is that your critics... If we listen to them, they'll determine our actions. Let me illustrate with a story. A father and a son took a donkey to the market. The man sat on the beast and the boy walked. People along the way said, that's a terrible thing. A big, strong fellow sitting on the donkey's back while the youngster has to walk. So the father dismounted and the son took his place. Some onlookers remarked, how terrible. This man walking and the little boy sitting. At that, they both got on the donkey's back, only to hear others say, how cruel, two people sitting on one donkey. Off they came. But the other bystanders commented, how crazy, the donkey has nothing on his back, and two people are walking. Finally, they were both carrying the donkey. It never made it to market. See, if we're not careful, our critics begin to dictate how we respond. Here's another thing. Trust God to be the ultimate judge. Would you turn to the book of 1 Peter, chapter 2, if you've got the Seatback Bible, page 1295. 1 Peter, chapter 2. Now, Peter here is talking about suffering unjustly, but I think the application would be the same as we face critics. 1 Peter, chapter 2. And I'm going to start reading at verse 21. 1 Peter 2.21, where he says, For to this you've been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, 
but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. There will be a day when all the wrongs will be put right, when justice will be established, when criticism will either be shown to be true or false. And then here's another one. Be open to God's instruction. When you're criticized, just pause and ask God if there's any truth to the criticism. Now, a word of caution, if you happen to be a more of an introspective person, don't go on a fishing expedition here. You know, don't go find stuff that isn't there. Uh, but we need to just go to God and say, is that true? And if it's right and it's just, then face it, deal with it, move on. If it's not, disregard it. The danger is that some of us make a sport of living by regrets and living with the concern that, you know, somebody criticized me and now I just do on it all day. That does nobody any good. Now, the flip side of this is an unwillingness to be corrected. Uh, Linus had his security blanket in place. His thumb is resting safely in his mouth, but he was troubled. And turning to Lucy, who was sitting next to him, he asked, Why are you always so anxious to criticize me? Her response was typical. I just think I have a knack for seeing other people's faults. <laughs> Exasperated, Linus threw up his hands and asked, well, what about your faults? Without hesitation, Lucy explained, I have a knack for overlooking them. <laughs> Don't be one of those people, okay? Be willing to look. Here's another one. Be an encourager rather than a criticizer. Now I'll flip it around for a moment. Um, be somebody who comes alongside, uh, alongside and encourages those who need encouragement. And then lastly, develop a thicker skin. You know, the danger as we grow older and even in the Lord is that we develop a thin skin and a thick heart. It should be a thin heart, a thin skin, a thick skin and a thin heart, a soft, pliable heart. You know, some people react to the slightest criticism, whether correct or not. Uh, it, it's, it might be better to ignore it if it just isn't true. In other words, don't feel that you always need to defend yourself. Abraham Lincoln once said, If I tried to answer all the criticisms of me and all the attacks leveled at me, this office would be closed to all other business. My job is not pleasing men, but doing the best I can. If in the end I'm found to be wrong, ten legions of angels swearing I was right will not help me. But if the end proves me to have been right, then all that is said about me now will amount to nothing. I guess it all comes back to this, trusting in God to be our judge, the only person we ultimately have to please. And so Paul's driven here to serve God with a clear conscience, with a loving heart, and entrusting himself into the one who called him by his grace. I think that's the model for us and how we deal when people criticize us. Would you join me in prayer? Lord, I pray that through your word, we might learn how to respond to our critics in a Christ-like way, that we would entrust ourselves to you, that we would honestly evaluate the criticism, whether true or not. Lord, we'd be quick to change if it is. But Lord, I pray you also would help us to respond to others uh, with a word of grace, a word of blessing, a word of encouragement as Paul did. Might his example be a model for us on how we're to respond to others. Would your spirit do his work in us 
is that we might more and more accurately reflect and represent the Christ who lives within us by his spirit. And I pray all these things in his name. Amen.